0: You know, seeing you is really a problem. I didn't realize that it's like a totally different thing than trying to do this over the phone, over Skype, I think. All right. I'm I'm good. I'm ready.
1: Hello. My name is Colin Donnell, and you're listening to episode three of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about designing and developing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is Bob Cantoni. Bob, welcome
0: to the show. Thanks, Colin. It's lovely to be here on this San Francisco Evening.
1: It's lovely to have you. Bob is actually uh, in studio, on couch, uh, in the living room today, in front of my uh, giant Zelda tapestry.
0: It's quite a nice tapestry. A lot of the studio accoutrements are um, Zelda themed, and I think that's wise. Mm-hmm. We're in a dark time as a country, and um, the power of the Triforce might be the only thing sustaining us.
1: I, I truly believe that. I think it's. I think it's fun. I think the message of, uh, you know, of goddess Hylia is fundamentally a message of hope, you know, to say nothing of uh, Din Leneiru uh,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and uh, the other one. Nadra. Nadra. Yeah. The other goddess from Zelda.
0: Listeners, long-time listeners will recognize, of course, the names of the three dragons that roam Hyrule in um, Zelda Breath of the Wild. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a, I- I'm assuming... Sort of a three hour long um, podcast about the timeline of the Zelda games and where Breath of the Wild fits into that timeline. Is that, am I, did I come on the right day? I
1: mean, it's obviously, so it's obviously in the child timeline because the Master Sword is in the Lost Woods on the same pedestal as from A Link to the Past and is only there in the child timeline. They also reference the Twilight Princess, they also reference Twilight Princess, spoilers, they reference Twilight Princess at one point in Breath of the Wild, Mm -hmm. which would also put it in that timeline, unless there's something else more weird going on than I understand.
0: I think that sounds right. I think you've got it. I think we can... So, Bob, how might people know you? Uh, I make apps sometimes um i worked with uh I, I founded a company called nice mohawk with my friend uh, ben lockman and we made an app called ida that let you uh make lists and order lists and share lists with people mm-hmm. and that was really fun and then um the past couple of years i've been working in san francisco at um a company called Lovely, where I, I think you're familiar with, and uh, most recently at Jelly, which was a uh, app and platform and website to let you ask questions and get answers from people on the internet.
1: And then Jelly was recently acquired by Pinterest.
0: That's correct. That's my understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good.
1: Yeah. Cool. So how did you? How did you? Uh, so the first app you mentioned, we'll talk about that. So number number one. Uh, you said Ida and nice Mohawk was kind of your first iOS related thing. You did. how did you get, how'd you get there?
0: How did I get there? I, um, started in like 2010, 2011, um, working on some apps with my friend, Ben and, and he had a company already. And then, um, there was this really nice little, um, we were working on a, a recipe manager app and part of the recipe manager was how do you do shopping lists? And we had this nice little interaction for ordering your shopping lists. We thought it was a really nice sort of editing environment and we felt like, yeah, this should be its own app. And, um, I wanted to be the person to make that app. So I helped make it, um, you know, with, with Ben and another of our developer friends. And then, um, we released it as, as nice Mohawk as, and, and with, then we were sort of off to the races, you know, it's been nothing but um just piles of money and um all the things that that go with it. Fast cars mm-hmm. and um people of of all genders really um who find um that they just want to be in like you, you know how it is as, as an app developer. Mm-hmm. It's just like you're you're a ninja rock star, right? So you wear your ninja rock star out to the uh the old coffee shop with the $12 toast and then you know it's just it's wall to wall people want to uh, There's a really be good
1: $12 toast place uh, da- down the street from here you should try.
0: Is that the one where they put the avocado on the toast?
1: Uh it might be I think they do the cinnamon toast there where they put the sugar and the cinnamon on it. But uh you can get in and out there for barely $12 13 before tax.
0: I think In-N-Out is a little overrated. I think that's maybe how Oh, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I haven't had an in and out burger in in many years now, <laughs> because I was vegetarian and now vegan for uh, almost going on a decade now. Wow. But um, that... you know, I, I remember it kind of sucking. I remember it actually not being super great. I mean, it was fine. A suck is the wrong word. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get some emails. If you want to email about this, uh, it's dispatch at the runloop dot Um, but. I remember the, the the burgers, I remember being fine, but I remember their fries are like unadulterated garbage.
0: I am glad that we made it almost six minutes into the podcast before you mentioned that you were a vegan. Uh, I think that might be a record. I'm not sure, um, but it's, it's good.
1: Uh-huh. I
0: think we can all feel proud of this. Um, let me be serious and really get to the heart of why I'm here today. Please do. Okay. We wanted to actually have a podcast. We were going to talk about real subjects like how do you make an app? Do you want me to uh, do you want me to tell you
1: Yeah, how do you make an app, Bob?
0: You program it um, use Xcode, and then you just push push all push a couple a couple buttons and, mm-hmm. and send it off there.
1: So Ida, when what year did you start developing that
0: like uh, two
1: thousand nine ten
0: uh twenty eleven Ida twenty
1: eleven. yeah, yeah. So Ida, yeah, I does a really nice list making app. Are you guys still doing that?
0: We're not. Yeah. Uh I don't know how you could do it anymore because I think a lot of people like you and I who started out as indie developers making apps figured out, you know, somewhere between 2012 and 2014 that it's really hard to make an app and sell it for money, right? And we see a lot of apps that are supported by advertising, that are supported by VC investment, that are really great to use and give a lot of value to people, um, but made it a lot harder for people maybe who just wanted to like make an app and sell it to customers in exchange for money. It sounds like an old-fashioned, crazy idea, but uh, that's the way we used to think about it.
1: Yeah, definitely And, uh you know when I was when I was getting started 2007 8, nine, um you know that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to make an app and sell it for money and be like all the all the cool people who who did that. Uh and it seems like it's still possible for some people on the Mac. Like there's still a little bit of a market there because the apps have a higher price, but it seems like there's very few people that are really it seems like it's been very difficult on iOS.
0: Yeah, I think part of it is uh the perception of value on the Mac is somehow just a different beast, right? Like it it's not going to take, I, I don't understand why it's actually so much easier. But at the same time, you see something like Twitterific just ran a Kickstarter campaign to come back with a Mac app, which they, they maybe didn't feel like they could just develop it without starting with the campaign. Um, so maybe on the Mac, it's also not necessarily like entirely a perfect market but definitely there's a lot more room there than there is on ios for sure
1: um so we're talking about ida we're talking about you know how it's become very difficult to do this so around 2014 that should bring us you know bring it around you were doing contracting right you were doing ida uh you know you were you were you were doing these apps with uh with ben and nice mohawk and then i convinced you to move to san francisco to work for a company called lovely All right. Helped convince you, helped. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to you about it. Yeah, yeah. So you came and we made a uh, apartment finding app together. Yeah, it was that, great. Yeah, it was great. And uh, I, I continued working there for a few months after that, and then you were there for a few months more than that.
0: Yeah, I was there for about a year. Yeah,
1: so you were there a little bit after I left, and then uh, and then that led you to working on. Uh, you went to work on something called Super which I remember.
0: What was super? Right. So I, um, I left lovely to go start working on super, which was a, an app where you could share images with messages on them. Um, I started working there and my first week, uh, we had a big meeting and we said, or I I was told, yeah, we're not going to work on super anymore. We're, we're going to pivot and go back to the original concept for the company, which was, uh, this Q and a app, uh, jelly. Jelly. Yeah. So I took a job and then immediately we were like, all right, we're starting fresh. we we did like an unpivot and went back to this original concept and then tried to build out an app and a website and a service um for that, which is which was really fun, really interesting. But mm-hmm. um yeah, but we didn't I didn't get to work on super for more than a few days. So
1: So can I ask you what that felt like that you got hired because you thought you were gonna do one thing and then they're like oh actually you're going to do a totally different thing that maybe you don't you know you weren't even uh you know like aware of or really cared
0: about right uh it was easy because there are there are two things that i really liked about it one is that jelly is actually like a service that i felt like could try to provide real value to people so people have questions they need information um we can give them answers to questions I think that seems like a really great idea. There's there's other services out there that try to provide this, but there's definitely like, that's providing a clear value to people. Whereas another app that lets you share photos or share, you know, little snippets of text, um, those things sort of already exist, right? And, and and they also, they're less less directly about one person helping another person, right? And what interests me about technology, about making apps is when I can make something that is actually going to bring value into people's lives, either give them information, give them a chance to connect to other people, give them the chance maybe to do both of those at the same time, right? Give information to other people, answer somebody's question and actually help them out. So because I felt really aligned with that vision, um, it felt like an easy transition. The second part of it that I really liked is that I'm really used to starting from scratch and building out a whole app into a concept, right? You come up with an idea, you say we have this thing, but what does it actually look like? What's the app? How does the app take shape? Um, That's a process that I'm much more familiar with rather than like taking this thing that already exists and is pretty good and then making it sort of incrementally better that's great too, but um, I feel pretty comfortable making something from scratch, and it gives you a lot of opportunities to, for example, start over. Um, and we used Swift, right? And there was that was just at the point where Swift had been out for a year, so we avoided most of the like terrible development. So we're talking Swift two, yeah, around Swift two, right? Yeah,
1: that's when I started using it for real, so.
0: right. So that makes it a lot easier, right? So you can say, like, all right, we have a fresh platform, a fresh language. We get to, I get to dive in and learn this new language and get and try to get to build something with it. It was, it was, it was a good time.
1: What were your, uh, what did you think of Swift moving from
0: Objective C? Uh, it's a much more complicated language than Objective C, sure. right? Um, and that, presents some challenges. Um, I think the main difficulty for me is was trying to figure out as an Objective-C programmer, what paradigms can I sort of carry over? What are the things that are going to carry over right now because they're part of the frameworks and part of um, Cocoa or Cocoa Touch? Um, and then what's actually part of the language? right? And so it felt like maybe some of the patterns that that were in the frameworks aren't necessarily part of the language. They're just sort of legacy. And so um, I think it made some things feel weird and and to, to an extent still feel a little bit weird about, about the way Swift works with Cocoa Touch. Um, but overall, like, yeah, it's great. It's like super clean. It feels good. It feels great after like using it for a couple months. I think... I would say and I uh, I think most people would say like, oh yeah, this is awesome. I love it. I don't ever want to go back to Objective C until I run into this like a problem or an edge case that like is gonna kill me in Swift, in which case I'm like sort of begging to go back to Objective C. That's a not, you know, pretty common experience, I think. Is that does that jive with your assessment?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I don't think I would want to go back to Objective C, but there's definitely times where, you know, it feels like you are kind of jumping through hoops a little bit and having to, like, check things in triplicate that, like, in Objective-C, like, you know, like the way nil works in Objective-C, where, like, nil returns nil. So if you know that, like, you know, this array or what, like, you want to, like, the example I think of is, like, you know, if you had an array and you're saying, like, all right, if either there's something in this array or if the array's nil or whatever, you know, then do this thing versus do this other thing, right? And you know that, like, nil returns nil, and that evaluates to false, and that's the same as zero, and, like, they're all the same. And so you just don't really have to care that much, and you get really used to thinking in that way when you work in Objective-C a lot. And in Swift, it's, like, completely different, right? In there, you know, you would have had to have unwrapped, you know, if that array could have been nil, that means it's an optional, which means you have to unwrap it before you can check it, which means, you know, and it's just all these... And I can see you know, why it works that way and what the benefits are. But it also is obviously, like you said, it's a more complicated language and there's a lot more you need to do.
0: Yeah. If you think in the Objective-C patterns, then you'll end up writing Swift code that feels very redundant. And uh, over time, you sort of either realize like there's new Swift patterns that you can optimize for, or you can just sort of get used to some of the redundancy and think of it as like, all right, this is boilerplate that I'm just... Ends up fading into the background at some point after you know after a year or two, right? That you don't notice that stuff anymore. It doesn't feel redundant because it's just yeah, we have to check optionals, right? And you realize like the safety you get from that is probably worth it.
1: Yeah, you're like this is my life now. This is reality. I guess this is my condition.
0: Yeah, now. Stockholm syndrome really sets in. Mm-hmm. No, it's great. It's it's good. It's a good language. Uh, I've also been been working a lot in Go um, for the past couple of years, uh, on the server side of jelly, all of our stuff was in, in Golang. And, uh, that's really fascinating because it feels like people talk a lot about similarities between Swift and go. And I think they definitely exist, but I also feel like go has a lot in common with objective C in that it feels like a very simple language. There's a lot of stuff that the language isn't going to take care of for you. And, um, so it was actually really nice to like get to work on Go and feel like oh yeah this does this feels more like objective C where I'm like close to the metal can I say You're that You're closer to the metal Yeah I like being closer to the metal That's I'm good. A, I'm a big You're pretty metal I'm yeah I'm I'm extremely metal That's true That's one of the things people are that I'm known for
1: Mhm Tell me about Go more like What, like, so my understanding is, like, Go is definitely a, like, a smaller language, right? Like, it doesn't have all these, like, Swift has a lot of, like, ideas of, like, you have classes and, you know, all the different sorts of, you know, um, things that go along with that, right? And, like, I thought, like, Go seemed like it was, I could be totally off base here. Uh Go seemed like it was almost more, like, C, kind of, like, not like C, but, like, more, more like that, kind of, like, simpler
0: yeah, definitely is a simpler language. Um, I wouldn't, I don't want to characterize it too broadly. I don't know. It's. A, it seems nice. It feels like uh, the code that it would lead me to write was just dead simple. Whereas like even today going into like an unfamiliar Swift code base, uh, I could run into stuff that's just language operators that are new in Swift three that I haven't used very much or something. Right. That would be like, I'd be like, well, what's this doing? Uh, and, and it, it felt like I I was forced to write, uh, simple, clear, like what, what I think of as good code, right. Coming from somebody who grew up on objective C, something that like you can like look at and understand and feel like, yeah, that this is, this is clear. Um, to the extent that the language can try to push you in that direction. I think go does a good job. It's also, um, really fun. Cause it's like a fast server language and you know, yeah, we can, we can do a lot of you. computation you with of it. That. I haven't done a lot of it. Yeah. Working on server stuff was really interesting. Um, one of the really fun things I got to do at jelly was we tried to build out what we thought of as a platform. And so we wanted to have this idea that you could ask a question from anywhere. So I got to build an app for the echo and for the Google home that would let you ask a question and get answers. Um, using a voice interface. And so I wrote that whole system in go. um, And it was super easy, like relatively easy, relatively like very fast to uh, iterate on. And, um, and also a really interesting sort of like user interface challenge. We were lucky enough to get to work with the Google home team and be a launch partner for them. And um, one of the people there described voice, UI design is like sucking a web page through a straw, which I think is like pretty apt. It's just like very limited. You can only, I I have to read you text, right? And so like, there's a limited amount of attention that the user is gonna wanna give to you. And there's um, a limited amount of input options they can have, right? They only remember what you tell them. Um, The benefit for me is like, I got, to, I got to work with Go and iterate on it really quickly. But the fun part really is like, I think that UI is, is really interesting because it's so limiting, right? In the same way that when you went from having websites that were built for desktop to having mobile websites, suddenly you realize like, oh yeah, all this other stuff I have to get rid of, right? If I just focus on the mobile website, I'll only include these really essential elements. And um, that felt like, voice is another level of that, right? Like to the nth degree where no really I'm only going to tell you the absolutely necessary information.
1: Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. What was the differences uh was developing for the Google Home versus the uh you know the the Amazon uh Tube uh were those much uh different like the way they handle stuff?
0: Uh yeah, there are a couple differences in the way that you can Authenticate, Um, Google has done a good job of allowing you to sort of – you can give your email address just by verbally authenticating and saying yes to a request. Whereas with the Echo, you have to actually um, log in through the Alexa app. Um, So if you require a login, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, The home also allows people to access any available skills. They don't have to be installed on the device. Um, So you have – you still need people to discover you, but there is one fewer step to um, them actually using you as a service. And so um, that led to some, I think, better adoption rates for us.
1: Yeah. I thought maybe Alexa switched to, I thought maybe the Amazon product uh, in a tube switched to uh, using that sort of a, uh, you know, like you can just talk to it now, but I I haven't tried it.
0: Oh, maybe you're right. Maybe that's a, That would be a change in the past few months, but yeah. Yeah. I think like
1: in the last couple of months, maybe they switched to doing that also, because that kind of makes sense. If you can make it work that way, that it would be better.
0: Right. And I appreciate that both for um, being in this room here and for your listeners, we should probably not say the A word um, too much. So I apologize if I activated anyone's uh, Amazon devices. Uh Uh-huh. I recently set mine to uh, my Echo to say "computer" uh, to to respond to computer. I
1: did that for like a day,
0: right? But then you realize, like, it, it very quickly you realize, like, oh, that's not a good trigger word.
1: No, it was completely untenable. Yeah, it was really fun for like four minutes, mm-hmm. three minutes. And then, uh, and, and I just had to switch it back.
0: Unless they get me the voice of the Star Trek computer to respond back to me, then I i don't really need it. It doesn't give me so much of a thrill just to say the word computer.
1: My, what's her name?
0: The Star Trek computer? Yeah. I mean, they just call her computer. You no, no, actress? no. the actress?
1: The actress. Oh, I don't know. Because uh, she's also uh, Luxana Troy. And she's also Gene Roddenberry's wife. So it... Magell Barrett or something like that?
0: That's a good, that's a deep cut.
1: She was also, uh, if you watch the original, if you watch the pilot for the original Star Trek, and mm-hmm. if you watch the Man Trap where they had Captain Pike, mm-hmm. uh, they had a first officer named uh, Number One, right? See where that, how that worked out? Uh, and she, and that was also her. Weird. Yeah. Right, I did. She not was notice. in a lot of Star Trek things. Good for her. Yeah. So uh so let me, let me see here. So we're talking about all this stuff now right? about you know super, which you know lasted like two days after you got there, and then they unpivoted back to Jelly, which was this QA thing. We're talking about Go, which is super interesting. Um, something else you've been talking about to me is that you're working with a group called Indivisible and doing helping them out with some technology kind of stuff and getting involved and maybe you could talk about what Indivisible is and also how you got involved and like how other people could get involved and use their, maybe help give their skills and whatever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I have not, I am very much on the fringes of any part of uh, the Indivisible movement. So uh, let me just preface with that so that nothing i say can be used against anyone else except for me. Uh but no there's a group of people, right? The Indivisible um a group of former congressional staffers and and other aides uh put together this guide called the Indivisible Guide. They put it out um i think mm, I'm not sure how early they put it out, but so they put it, they put into this guide sometime between the election and the inauguration this year. And, um, it became very popular. They tried to help people figure out how do I contact my members of Congress? How do I contact them effectively? And how do I sort of organize so that, um, you can have you can have your voice be heard. Let's say in any in any direction that you want, whether that be towards progressive causes or towards conservative causes. But yeah, uh, and so but the indivisible group in particular wants to sort of push Congress towards supporting more progressive causes, um, and so they have they developed this guide and then have encouraged groups to spring up around the country. Um, where in any congressional district, you could have a group that helps you figure out how do you contact your members of Congress? And also like, well, what are you talking about? What are the progressive causes that we should be championing um, when there's this president and this, this Congress? And these are the sort of, the priorities might not align with a lot of progressive goals. Um, so that's been a fun thing to get involved with. It's, A little frustrating because we're here in San Francisco, right, which is an extremely liberal place. Um, And so we can contact sort of our senators and our members of Congress, um, but that doesn't always feel very effective. So, one of the things that I've been trying to help with a little bit is helping the indivisible group here in San Francisco. How can we empower people around the country to have? any kind of technology that they need or that they could use to either organize or protest or contact their members of Congress or, uh, understand, right. Even just like, how do you sort through data, right. How do you get all any data that might be missing from the EPA's website, right. Where the people who have been sort of collecting that are also sort of, uh, peripherally involved with, with this movement. So, um, those have been That's been fun to get to work on. We're still trying to figure out how to – like what the best thing to do is, right? And that's really scary but also really exciting. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for people who are like you and me who have a fair amount of technical skills. Uh, well, we've made a bunch of apps and websites for companies and for ourselves, and that's great. Can we also make stuff that helps people – maybe not even do something that's entirely political. Maybe it's just about, can we do something that helps people communicate across political boundaries with each other or with their members of Congress so people can understand like, yeah, listen, here are the actual stories of people who are, have gotten health care through the affordable care act. And here's like, what's going to happen if the American healthcare act passes. Um, So it's been fun to get to work with them. I'm excited to keep working with them and try to, make good stuff and sort of right now we're just trying to figure out what that is. What's the good stuff to make right now?
1: So would you say that you're hacking democracy?
0: I wouldn't say that. Would you
1: say (laughs) you're helping democracy pivot to a, to a new level?
0: No, I wouldn't say any of Maybe
1: to like it's a round.
0: I wouldn't say that. Uh, Mm. No, I would say, uh, no, I wouldn't say any of that, but no, we we're you know, as much as possible, uh,
1: you're hacking democracy.
0: Let there be just like, I'm hoping there can be something that can escape the uh, some of the language that we use in tech in San Francisco feels um a little jargony, I think, when you're outside of San Francisco. So as as much as possible, I'm gonna communicate with people outside of San Francisco and help them to figure out how to get people to participate in democracy. But um, we won't use the we're not hacking it. We're not hacking. It. We're not ninjas.
1: No. You're not you're not you're not ninja warriors hacking democracy. No, 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 no.
0: No. Yeah.
1: Good. All so, right, so. Yeah.
0: Let me hijack the conversation Tell for a feels. little bit. I the thing that I want to talk to you about is uh Jelly got acquired, right? So I I came to Jelly as the
1: Wait, 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 wait. I want to back up one step. All right, all right, all right. I really want to hear about Whatever you're going to say next. But the thing I actually asked you, we didn't get to. Oh, okay, we talked wait, about so. why you're getting involved in Invisible. But let's say there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's literally dozens of listeners out there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who might be uh, wanting to also get involved. Maybe they haven't yet. Yeah. What, wh- how, how would someone who hasn't been involved in one of these groups, but cares about, you know, progressive causes and, you know, hacking democracy and, uh, you know, Democracy 3.0, how would they get involved? How could they start? Where's the best place to
0: do that? That's a great question, Colin. Uh, Thank you for asking that question. That shows a lot of insight on your part. And I'm not saying this just because I'm stalling to think of an answer. I want you to know that was a good question.
1: I'm also handsome.
0: Now that we've acknowledged that, let's move on and let me give you an answer that I have prepared already. Uh, So how would you do that? Wherever you are in the country, uh, everybody has a local members of Congress, local groups that are somewhat involved in politics. Um, So start out on the internet and try to look for those groups. Um, I think there's a lot of – there's nothing wrong with getting involved with your local Democratic Party group, right? But there might also be indivisible groups nearby. There might be, at this point, like – multiple indivisible groups or multiple different kinds of progressive groups among that, that might not call themselves indivisible, right? That's just one one section. Um and so people wherever they are can find a local group, try to get connected with them and then see what their needs are, right? I think the emphasis on one big national campaign every four years isn't what's needed right now, right? What's needed right now is how do we organize to contact the people in our district that can influence our representative in the house and have that person, uh, represent us, uh, and know what we want, right? Know know what we want and know why we want it and maybe understand, right? If you have a very conservative member of Congress, that person might not have very many people who can speak to them uh, as a constituent and and express their concerns about a progressive take on an issue, right? So
1: we're talking about showing up at meetings, yeah. making phone calls.
0: Yeah. Or just starting out by Googling and seeing like, all right, what other political groups can I Google indivisible in my district? Or can I contact the Democratic Party in my district and help, maybe they'll know about what's going on and that's a that's a good place to start
1: and then they they have a, they have meetings they have get togethers
0: yeah, so you you there
1: might be snacks or might not be
0: yep, you might go to a get together you might figure out um, here are the things that people are really concerned with in in your area. maybe those people will have the same concerns that you have or maybe they'll they'll have different concerns that you either find compelling or not, and then have an opportunity to either say like yeah, um, at least have options right you'll know there's more than Sometimes I think it feels like there's nothing that I can do um, or it has felt that way in the past. And I think that's a really scary place to be. That feels really bad to me personally. and it, But it also is a place that that's what – there's no reason for people in power to want everybody to think that they have a voice. It it might be beneficial if people didn't think that their voice counted, right? But if you actually realize, no, 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 there's stuff I can do. I can call my congressperson. I can show up at a march or even at a meeting with my local congressperson staff. And actually have somebody who wants to listen to my concerns whose job is to listen to my concerns and most of these people actually take their jobs really seriously. They're there to represent their constituents. They may believe that representing their constituents, um, means voting in a conservative manner, in which case the solution is to let them know that there are constituents out there that have other concerns that aren't being met. So, um,
1: that's a very positive way to say you can scare them a little bit (laughs) by letting them know that there are people in their district who do not like this and are voters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I think the the most important thing to keep in mind for me, the thing that keeps me from just being totally apathetic when the political news feels on a day like today uh, could feel very um, demoralizing, uh, it's helpful to remember that, yeah, I can do – I can do things. I do have a voice. I can make it heard in some ways, and it's not as easy as it could be. It'd be great to help make it easier, but, um, but you know, there's people trying to do that, right?
1: And just to comment on the day of recording, uh, there's n- no comment on this specifically other than to say uh, the context. Uh, when we say like a day like today is today uh, the director of the FBI was fired. Uh, and, you know, we don't know a lot more about that other than that, but that's just what Bob was referring to there.
0: Yeah, he seems he seemed nice.
1: Very tall. Is he tall? He's six eight. Really? I saw him next to Trump. I I saw him next to President Twitter Egg, and um, and he, uh, and I know that he's very tall. Mm-hmm. He's like six two, and he dwarfed him. And I uh, I I was surprised. And uh, I looked it up. He's 6'8". He's very tall. Very
0: tall. I am surprised that he lasted this long, given his height.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: I would find that very intimidating if I were the president.
1: If you were the president? Yeah, you you don't want somebody taller than you.
0: No, they're going to cuck you.
1: (laughs) 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 Hold on. I think you just cucked the podcast. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Man. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh before <laughs> leaving this in. Um, before I hijacked your hijack, uh you were going to talk to me about uh you know what you're doing next and you're, you know, cuz you, you know, uh Jelly got acquired and uh you're deciding what your next move is going to be and you have some feelings about that.
0: Yeah, so I started a Jelly as an in- as their iOS developer. Um, we had another iOS developer who ended up leaving a few months after I started and, uh, the, but I left as the product manager. And what I've been thinking about is as I figure out what my next job is going to be, I think right now I'm only applying to where I, I, I'm only looking for places that have, uh, product manager jobs, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm considering sort of, do I want to, what kind of job do I want? What kind of company would, would I want to be at? Uh, but one of the things that if I was going to get a job at a company, would I be comfortable being an iOS developer? Um, or do I want to have a, play a product role? Um, so you've been through this. Uh, what do you do? What do you, what do you, what am I doing in
1: my current role? Yeah. Uh, so in my current role, I work at a company called StoryWorth, which is a thing. I haven't actually talked about this on the show before, but uh, what StoryWorth does is we help you um, send a question to your grandma, sister, mom. Those are all female. Also works for dad, grandpa, you know, uh, to one of your family members. We'll send you and send them a question every week. Like, what was your first car? What was your first job like? What were your friends in high school like? Or Or you can enter your own questions. And then uh, we collect you know, all of their answers over time, their stories, and then, uh, eventually we'll print it in a nice book for you. And you have like this nice heirloom of all of grandma or grandpa's stories of their life. Um, so I make our, I primarily make our iOS app. I also did a, uh, Apple TV app and, um, and what we, uh, what, what I do there is I, I've kind of done product and, uh, I've kind of done product and uh, development on the app because there's only three of us right now. Uh, So, you know, I do design. I do kind of every, you know, we all do a little of everything, I guess. But I mean, except that I do all the iOS programming. Great. So. Sorry, I was kind of long-winded because I had to explain what we were because I've never talked about it
0: before. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioning that you do both product work, and development work, right? And one of the big struggles for me in going from running my own show to working in San Francisco is trying to figure out what's my job, right? Because as an independent app developer, excuse me, as an independent app developer, I got to do everything, right? I wrote all the code, I designed the... The structure of the app. I worked with graphic designers or just did the visual design myself uh, to get the visual design. I worked with, if I was working on a contract, I might work with a client to figure out what the features are of the app. Uh, But I was doing a lot of stuff that in San Francisco I think would be considered product work or design work. And then I moved here and I realized that my job was... Actually, only to do like a quarter of the stuff that I used to do before. Right? Suddenly, my job was just to do the engineering, and I think for some people that works okay. For something, for some people that works really well, uh, but it might depend on what parts of the job of a developer you really find interesting, right, or really find compelling, right? For me, when I started, when we started talking about the Echo before making a making a voice app. Um, what gets me really excited isn't talking about how that's structured in Go, right? Which is actually like pretty neat, right? We got to have we basically use the same structure for both um, the Amazon app and the Google app, and so we got to. I wrote some nice clean code, right? But that doesn't really get me excited to talk about, right? What I'm excited to talk about is like, well, what does it mean when I have to communicate with a user and they can't see anything, right? Like for me, the UI is really interesting. The product decisions that go along with that, what do I include when, when someone asks a question over the Amazon tube device, um, do I just print that? and send that off? Or do I actually repeat it back to them? Because you might actually want to see that your words were transcribed correctly. Um, questions like that, I think, are, are where you get into trying to empathize with the user, where you get into trying to figure out like, yeah, what is this for? What need of the user am I trying to meet? And how am I reaching that goal? Um, and so it's been a struggle for me to feel like I don't, Sometimes at some companies, an iOS job could mean doing all of that, right? It seems like that's what it can be like, especially at very small early stage startups, right? Small companies, Uh, but at bigger companies, uh, those parts of the job get sort of siphoned off a little bit. And I'm not sure. I'm still not sure after after a few years in San Francisco how there are some advantages there. There's some disadvantages there, and um, it's something that I'm trying to think about as I look at either starting a company or at, at what companies I might want to join. Um, is I want to carve out a piece for myself where I get to do, where I get to do some of the more interesting product-oriented work, um, and that might mean that I don't get to program, which sucks in some ways, but is uh, maybe what you have to do. But I'd be I'd be interested to hear what your experience is at StoryWorth and and how it compares.
1: Yeah. So if you work at a small startup or, you know, it's more like being an, you know, at a small startup, everybody kind of does everything. Right. Uh, and it's maybe a little bit more like being an indie, you know, we've both had indie apps before we did the whole thing. And I think when we, uh, when we worked at, uh, at lovely, which I can say this now because they, uh, because they got shut down, uh, because they, you know, they uh what 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 would be the term for what happened with them i know the the website's still there but the office is not there
0: yeah that part of the company uh the parent company <laughs> shut down the san francisco office
1: okay so anyway when we worked at the company that we worked at together uh i know we had both come from an indie app background and doing things where you know Even if it was contracting, you know, I think I tended to try and do, you know, more of it. Uh, And going from that to working in a bigger company where it was like 50 people or more uh, in the office, that was, I think, I think it was challenging for both of us, uh, you know, to all of a sudden we have like, you know, designers and that's cool, but also you have like product people and it's also like not really clear like what they're doing and like, I think we both sort of have the instinct to kind of want to do everything if we can. Um and what was your question?
0: Yeah, I'm wondering uh well, it sounds like that balance works out at Storyworth. Yeah, as, for me it's yeah.
1: working pretty well here in that I uh you know, I get to have a lot of, you know, I get to determine a lot of what I do and a lot of what the app's going to be. And uh you know, the CEO who I work with uh a lot Uh, he, you know, he obviously, he has a lot of say in it too. You know, it's his company, right? He's the founder, but, um, you know, definitely I, 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 we, we work together a lot on that. And, you know, if I want to add a thing to the app, I just kind of add a thing to the app. And it's, it's more like when I was doing indie apps in that way. Um, so I, you can find that, but I found that working at a bigger company where it was like 50 to a hundred people, uh, uh, P you. They want to uh, they want to pigeonhole you a little bit. So like if you're a designer, you are like if you're a designer, they want to make you a designer. And if you're a if you're somebody who can do programming, they want to make you a programmer. And I felt like at a lot of places, they don't always know what to do with somebody who wants to be a designer and a developer and like kind of figure out the whole th- kind of have their hands in all of it. Because the whole system is just sort of not set up for that at a lot of these places.
0: Yeah. So I think that makes a lot of sense. I think um, that is – on the one hand, that's just a transition that you have to go through, right? And just even knowing it or having it articulated to you uh, is really helpful, right? Which I think when I came out here, I didn't really know what the – what was expected of me as far as like – What amount of what I now call product work could be part of my job? Um, And it's variable, right?
1: Yeah. Like I would say that when we worked at Lovely, Mm -hmm. you and I did a lot more what would be considered product work than basically any of the other engineers at that company did who weren't working on mobile, right? Like we were, we were very involved in the UI and stuff where other people were kind of, a lot of the other people were kind of more just like, well, you know, go do it and then hand me, you know, the mock-up and I'll make it happen. Where you and I were more insistent on actually like being a part of the whole process. Um, You know, so it's, it's even at a larger company, it's still variable, right? Like you can still sometimes find room to do that.
0: Yeah, I ha- it's harder. It is harder, right? And I, I have an idea that I'm not totally sure how to articulate, but as a as a product manager, Colin, let me tell you. As
1: a product manager.
0: Yes, as a product manager, uh, one of the things that I want to do um, is shorten my feedback loops as much as possible, right? Like I want to – when I have an idea – for a feature or for a service or for a, even a whole website, I want to put it in the wild and actually see if, do people really like this? Um, and try to get some feedback on it quicker than quicker than not. Right. And my gut feeling is that in San Francisco, sometimes we'd spend a lot of work on stuff that doesn't necessarily get field tested until the last minute. Um, and then we put it out there, and we see like, oh yeah, nobody liked this thing. Well, if we made the first, like, if we put the alpha out there and gotten some feedback on it and iterated on it, and made it a little bit better, maybe we'd get a little bit closer. This is a very like unappley way of making something, maybe. Mm-hmm. So I apologize for the the iOS and Mac developer community, but um, but I think there's something valuable to it, right? In the same way, I feel like there's a connection between this and between um, engineers who work on products where they're not involved with the design and not involved with the product thinking that's focused on the end user. I feel like that can be too far away from figuring out, like, I want the engineer to think about those users' needs too, right? I want the engineer actually, like, also in that feedback loop, And I feel like that's hard to do, right? It's hard to have that feedback loop at all, but it's especially hard to actually, can we have design and engineering also in on this where they feel bought into the needs of the user?
1: Everybody's at all phases of it.
0: Yeah. And maybe that's a little silly, right? Maybe it's okay. Like people need to focus, right? People need to figure out like, sometimes you need to just do your engineering flow and not worry about, you know, what, um, what the user is thinking about or, or worry about, like, is this feature going to succeed? What are the metrics and stuff? But I but I think sometimes actually you actually want, yeah, I want that, right? I want my engineers to be involved and have this vision where they can stand in the way and say, like, listen, no, the product person messed this up and the designer messed this up, and they're the last person standing there before something actually is going to get shipped.
1: Yeah, and I would say, uh, you know, when we've worked together that, for you and I, it is physically impossible for us to not think in those ways. Right? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like some people, I think some people that that is as as you're saying it. I'm thinking, I know that theoretically some people can get in an engineering flow, like you said, and kind of just work that way and not think about the user. But to me, it's like, I guess I have I have trouble. I'm not saying that there aren't people that have better you know, uh, interaction skills than, you know, user interaction skills or, you know, certainly like graphical design skills than me, like, you know, there's, you can't specialize in everything, right? But to me, I have a hard time thinking that engineering and design are actually two different things because I sort of think of them all as just problem-solving. It's all, like, really, they're both, they're both about problem solving and use a different app to do it and use different tools to do it. But in my mind, ultimately, what we're worrying about is they're both, to me, it's hard to think of them as different things because I kind of think of it all as being design. And I think of it all as being engineering and that you're using the same sort of process to get there. Um, because I think like the user looks at an app and they say like, all right, this is ugly and you know, I don't like, you know, the way it works, you know, like physically uh, or, you know, or this is slow when it freezes up. And I don't think the user is saying like, this has bad engineering or this has bad design. The user just says this app sucks, you know? So to me, like separating those out into two different things and not thinking of it as all part of a whole is kind of weird. If that makes any sense. I've, I don't know, it's just always how my brain has worked. And I think it might be because when I was coming up, I, I basically assumed that to get it, you know, cause I wanted to be a Mac developer before the iPhone, you know, was a thing and, uh, you know, was kind of working on a path to get there. Um, and I kind of always assumed nobody was ever going to hire me to do this. So I was going to have to learn to do the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, in order to ever get anywhere. Uh, and, and so I kind of tried to learn a little of both, um, you know, and a lot of both over time. Um, but I don't know, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it does. And, and like, to me, it's hard not to think like as an engineer or as a designer, it's hard not to think of the whole thing
0: everything is connected in these digital products. Right. And that, that totally makes sense, but also people have different jobs, right. That they actually have to do. Then they have to complete certain tasks. Right. And it's hard to actually, it's hard to add on to that tasks and say like, yeah, you have to do the visual design and you have to do the engineering. And also you both have to think about like, does this make sense? And what, what are our goals here? And you have to know what the user actually wants. Right. And, um,
1: and 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 that's that's where you think the product manager role really fits in.
0: I mean potentially, right? If the, if there is a reason for it, it's to have like, yeah, that vision to make that really clear so that everybody can be on the same page and everybody can know like yeah, you know we're building this thing so that people can tell their stories mm-hmm. and get a book and actually know like this thing that that used to just disappear, right? Into family lore that nobody wrote down that story that my great-grandfather had, right? And now it's lost to time. And if we save that, right, how can we save that better, right? And if everybody's aligned with that vision, then you can have great ideas come from the engineers and come from the designers. Um, maybe it doesn't take a, a product person in in every company, right? But in as the as a company grows... It's hard to have the CEO play that role for everybody, mm-hmm. for every part of a product or for multiple products within a company, right? And so,
1: Yeah, I wasn't trying to say that, like, those roles don't shouldn't exist. It's yeah. just that for me personally, when you say, like, as an engineer, like, some people, some engineers don't think about those things. That's kind of weird for me to hear because, I mean, I understand that, like, if I'm an engineer, maybe somebody else is, like, doing the graphics. Like, that makes sense to me because there's people who can, you know, like – You know, we worked with somebody at Lovely who was really fast at that and really good at that, and they could do it very quickly. Um, You know, and they weren't so much, like, an interface or, like, interaction designer. They were more of just, like—but they could really do, like, graphics. Um, They could do some of that other stuff, too. But, um, you know, and obviously we worked with some really good product managers at Lovely also. Uh, Yeah, everybody has different roles to play. I just—for me, it's, like, everybody in all those roles— I don't know. I feel like the engineer should be able to think about, you know, how does, you know, does this make sense? Like, because it sucks if you're programming something and you're like, I'm going to program this and put all the time and effort into this. And at the end, it's still going to be garbage. Like that, that's not good either.
0: Right. Yeah. You definitely need to be bought into the vision, but also I think giving engineers and designers a chance to, articulate and shape that vision in addition to just buying into a vision that somebody else's, uh, that feels like a positive thing, right? I want everybody to be involved in creating the vision that we share.
1: Yeah. So what would you see? So, so specifically you want to, you you want to move into product management more you're thinking right now and you're not exactly sure. It seems like exactly where, you know, cause that might, that of all the roles of between design and engineering and product, you know, it seems like kind of the most nebulous of the three mm-hmm. of that. Like it can sort of swing a little more towards engineering or a little more towards design, depending on the person and the company. So, you know where you said you want to tighten the feedback loop for yeah. you. So what exactly do you see your role being there that, you know, how, how can you help if you're not actually doing the, you know, the designing and you're not actually doing the programming, how can you help those people make the best thing possible? Like what, what would you like your role to be there? Yeah. It sounds like a job interview when I say it like that.
0: No, it's great. Yeah. I'm really excited to I'm have really a-
1: excited to have this opportunity.
0: I have a lot of salary requirements and I'm going to need a lot of, uh, vacation time. Uh, no, I, I think my, there's a lot of work to do, right? Uh, because I have a background in engineering, I can do a lot of work in like figuring out what are the actual requirements and what are the feasibilities for any given, um, design or project. Right. And that's really helpful to be able to say like, Oh, actually like X is 10 times more expensive than Y in terms of engineering time. Right. Like that's a really helpful thing to have. Um, if we know that, then we can actually put out a version that people can use where we can have that tight feedback loop because we started with the easiest thing to engineer. Um, I'm not sure what the, I'm not sure what the limitations are of the, of the product role, right? Like it's a little, it is a little bit nebulous, right? It's a little bit too much like organizing the management, like, oh, here's all the work we have to do and here's how to like organize it, right? And that's just like brute force, pivotal Trello skills to like break something down and write really good descriptions that'll make a spec that people could, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, can people finish this project, right? That's like the rubric that I use, right? Um, that part's uh, pretty easy because I've had to struggle with it a lot. Uh, it's At this point, it's pretty easy. The part that I think is harder is like, all right, if we talk a lot of bullshit about how much vision is important, how do we actually communicate vision through engineering and through design where everybody really is on the same page and everybody has the opportunity to stand up and say like, how is this actually connected to like giving our users like something that they value, right? Something that's gonna actually make them wanna use this app or this website Um, and how do we connect it to that how do we connect it to that when so much of our industry seems intent on figuring out better ways for people to waste time so that we can like sell more ads uh that's that that i think is like a really interesting challenge right mm-hmm. and and i think the only thing that i have is to say like i can just try to say like no focus on giving people something that they actually want, something that's actually valuable to the people using this product. Um and just just pointing and saying like, no, 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 focus, focus on the people using the product. Uh you know, maybe some companies already already have that, but I think a lot of times that's actually what people need to do a little bit. Actually, uh yeah, you know what? This uh remote control that you released two years ago is, uh, fundamentally completely broken. Right. And we all have this remote control in our homes.
1: Oh, the, we're talking about the Apple TV remote. That Uh is, I think personally the, tell me if you disagree, I think it represents, I I think there's a lot right with what Apple does in design. Obviously they're, you know, they're, they're great design company, but I think everything that can be defined as wrong with Apple design right now is in that
0: piece of garbage remote. Right. And so somehow nobody – there was nobody to stand in front of that. Because they knew. Somebody
1: knew. Somebody said, you, you're not going to be able to tell if it's upside down or right side up. Right. And nobody felt empowered to be
0: able to right. fix it. Nobody was like, no, we're not shipping this, right? And, and – uh, God, it's so terrible. We're gonna be here until we, until we, the day we die. We're gonna be talking about Steve Jobs and how awesome Steve Jobs is, right? But like, the the thing I remember is a uh, a keynote from like two thousand two, two thousand three. It was the year before um, Apple released the iMac with the arm. Yeah, the G four. Right, and um, they had an iMac. And it had a, a CRT monitor built in, and it was, but it was a little bit flatter. But it was still the basic iMac shape, right? It was what eventually was released as the eMac, the yeah, education yeah, Mac.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was after, like, the Flower Power one and all right.
0: that. Yeah, after Flower Power. And it was going to be the keynote, like, big product launch. And Steve Jobs stood in front of it and said, like, no, we're not putting this out there. And six months later, they released the arm, awesome. Which was cool. G4 iMac. Yeah, like a beautiful machine.
1: So I saw one the other day at my, um, at my martial arts dojo, uh, which I've mentioned on the, on the, on the podcast before. Uh, I, I saw one because they were taking all the stuff from upstairs, whatever. Uh, they were moving garbage out, and it was in the garbage pile. Ugh. And I was like, and I was just playing with the arm because it was just sitting in the pile. It was kind of half like falling apart. And I was like, oh, this is nice.
0: Right. A beautiful machine. Right. But it took somebody to say like, no, no, listen, we're not going to ship this and we're not going to have like a main keynote product to announce at this. I think it was a Mac world. Uh, and that's, that's how much we care about like getting this right. Uh,
1: tie it back to the remote.
0: Yeah. So with the remote, there's nobody to do that, right? There's nobody to say like, oh wait, we had this cool thing, right? We figured out how to put a touch screen-like interface where you're not really touching the screen, you're touching this little remote. And it's cool, but you know, I can't tell if it's upside down. And you know what? I can't actually go... If you had this remote in your hand and somebody put a gun to your head and said, you have to move right one item, not two items. If it's two items... I shoot you in the head. And if it's no items, <laughs> I shoot you in the head. You'd be like, no, I'm, I'm going to die today. Right. <laughs> and that's a problem. Right. And there's nobody to say, no, no, listen, we're going to get this right. We're going to, we're going to redo this and mm-hmm. we're going to get it right. Uh, that's a role that I think somebody needs to play in a lot of companies that exist in our, in our town. Um and there's a lot of money right now, and that's cool, and it makes it easier to ship stuff that doesn't make... Doesn't quite do the thing. <laughs> it Doesn't quite do the thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's there still is value for that. And somebody who can say, like, no, we're really going to focus on what is the user need? What is the user value? Or even if this is a cool tech demo, what's really going to help our users get to their next, you know, episode of Buffy? It's
1: true. Uh I mean I think the answer there for what you're getting at too is that like I feel like a product manager a great product manager can be a net positive and a really bad product manager can be kind of a net negative.
0: Oh, I can be a net negative even as being a mediocre product manager. I can mm-hmm. get, I can get you to that negative. Yeah, I feel like a great pro- that's good. I can really reduce the value of a company. I mean just I don't have to be there very long. It wouldn't be the first time I've seen it. Whew. Uh but the <laughs>
1: I feel like no I feel like a great product manager though is somebody who can like do the stuff that the designers and the you know be a go between and like do the st- I shouldn't say go between cuz I kind of actually think engineers and designers should be talking mm-hmm. but uh be somebody who does the things like research I think is really important mm-hmm. and I think that's not something that does that like the graphics pe- you know the people who do more graphical stuff or the engineers are generally uh especially suited or trained in and I think it's something that a product manager could really help with, and actually, like say, like here's reasons for why maybe we want to do this thing or think about it, um, you know, and not just be like the little Napoleon of the product or whatever. Um, so I think a really great product manager can be a really great thing, and I think a bad, pro- I think a mediocre product manager though, even is kind of a net negative. I think a good product manager, a great product manager, is a positive. But I think, like, if you were a five out of ten, like, that's not a neutral. That's mm-hmm. like a negative because you're just adding this like layer of abstraction at the very least. If you're not like actively adding something to the product,
0: so that's stupid. No, no, I, I think that seems great. I think I think that seems very reasonable. If you were a, uh, if you had to give advice to somebody who is an indie developer doing iOS or Mac stuff who's coming from a place where we were looking to come to San Francisco or Austin or or wherever and but looking mm-hmm. to like sort of move and take a job, um, what would you look for?
1: What would I look for if I were that person and I wanted to move into a company? Yeah. Or what would you tell them? Yeah. I would say, uh, you know, it depends a lot on the company you're gonna work for, but let's say it was like my situation or moving to a place that's like 50 people or so, you know. 30, 40, 50 people, kind of bigger startup size. That's what I have experience with, right? If I was in that situation, I would say, be very clear with what you expect your role to be to the person hiring you, you know, to the CEO or whoever. Be very clear what you expect your role to be and what you want to do here and um you know preferably get it in writing if you can even if you know what you want that to be um but you know don't show up thinking necessarily that if you they're not used to dealing with people like if you are one of these people like uh like us who has done the whole thing they're not necessarily used to dealing with somebody like you and if you give them the impression that you're just a, that you, not just, I mean, there's nothing wrong being in just a programmer, but if you give them the impression that you are a programmer and you're going to come program their iPhone app or whatever, their Mac app, and you get there and you really want to have a say in the design and the product direction and all those things, if you don't make that clear, like very clear, like very explicit before you get there, they may not know what to do with you. And that may be very frustrating for you because you will believe, you will believe that you kind of got hired to do one thing, which was to kind of like, obviously, you hired me because I'm a person who can do everything. And I'm going to come here. And I'm going to do some design. I'm going to do some whatever. And they were thinking, we're hiring another engineer because we already have 20 other engineers, and this is what engineers are like. Uh, so I would just make sure that you—I if I, I would say a mistake that I have made at least once— is not being very clear about what I wanted to do. And I think that would be the advice I would give. Is just be explicit. Like, just tell them, like, this is what I want to do. And, you know, is that is that what you see for this role? And I would look out for if they use kind of squirrely language, if they're sort of like, like what I've heard previously uh, is things where it's like, uh, where it's like, mm, yeah, you know, I think that everybody here should live up to their situation that they're in and do the thing that they are meant to do. And I, you realize you actually did, you just said words, but they didn't mean anything. They actually didn't address anything. And could we could we nail down what my job here is? If, if you think you're going to be somebody who, if you have a specific idea of what you want to do. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, uh, let me speak to that a little bit by saying, It's not just for you, but also for the the company too. It's good for them too because they Uh, should know. And you want – like I I would say there are a lot of places where you can go and be really happy if you want to go somewhere and like – sometimes you just want to go somewhere and like I want to really geek out over Swift and get – into it as much as I can, right? And the time that I spend, my free time I'm gonna spend trying to learn more stuff about the language and try to figure out like, this is all that I care about, right? Um, and it's really, I think, can be freeing in a way to say like, oh no, look, I got a job so I could just care about that and that's all I have to do. And yeah, you gotta know what and if that's right what you for want, you. That's great,
1: yeah. Like if you are somebody who's just like a language nerd and like, okay, here here's an example of that. I... You know, I am, you know, I, I, I'm pretty wide in the things that I I, I like to work on. And I, I like to think I'm pretty good at a lot of stuff with, you know, dealing with iOS and Mac apps. But I'm sure that there is, you know, some low level, really hardcore stuff that I'm never going to be necessarily the best at, or I'm never going to be necessarily the best graphic designer or whatever, because I like to be a little more broad than that. And somebody else really is like, if you told them all you need to worry, you don't need to worry about the other stuff. All you need to worry about now is just being the best programmer you can be. Maybe to them, that's more freeing instead of restrictive.
0: Yeah. So I, I think that makes sense. Just sort of articulating, like being explicit about what the role is and how the role will change going from, going from India to, to working at a job.
1: I think you I think the the I think, you know, as in a lot of situations the people you are, you know, going to be working with or whoever are usually pretty, you know, they're they're going to be reasonable usually. And if they're not, you shouldn't work if you find out they're not, you shouldn't work with them. But if if assuming they're just like reasonable normal people who want you know, you to do the best you can do and you to be happy and for you to give the most value you can to where you're going to work, then, um, I think more communication is always going to be the right answer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. All
1: right. Should we wrap it up? Sure. Sounds okay. great. All right. So how can people find you if they wanted to find you on the internet?
0: I'm on Twitter at Cantoni, C-A-N-T-O-N-I. Cool.
1: Do you have anything else you want to point people to? No, that's great. Nice Mohawk? Uh,
0: yeah, nicemohawk.com. We have some stuff up there. I'm still uh, working on our an updated website. Fabulous. It's going to be less terrible. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty good.
1: Uh, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at, uh, at uh, twitter.com slash Colin Donnell. That's just my whole name spelled out. Uh, if you want to follow the show, it's, uh, twitter.com slash the run loop. Uh, and if you would like to become, if you'd like to get on the ground floor of, uh, being a Patreon supporter of the show, uh, you know, you can do that at, uh, patreon.com slash Colin Donnell. Uh, so thank you very much for listening and have a great week. Oh, and thank Bob for being here.
0: Thank you.